0: If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2 once again for our study of God's Word. Moral Therapeutic Deism. It has no church, but it is a religion with many thousands of members. Moral Therapeutic Deism is the title that sociologists are using to describe the religion of most American teenagers, including those who say they're Christians. Moral, therapeutic deism. Moral, because religion's ultimate aim is for you to be the good person that you are. Therapeutic, because another aim of religion is to help you feel good about yourself. Deism, because while God or a God exists, this God is not sovereign, and He's not very personal either. I keep this in mind whenever I speak to teenagers, which seems to be happening a lot lately. But I keep this in mind whenever I speak to adults, like now. I always keep this in mind because I know the teenagers are not becoming members of the quote-unquote church of moral therapeutic deism without being guided there. I know that they're not adopting this worldview apart from adult leading so I assume whenever I speak anywhere, that many of the people I'm speaking to, whether, uh, or whether they realize it or not, whether they've ever heard of it before, are members of the quote unquote church of moral therapeutic deism. Today we're going to focus on the moral component of moral therapeutic deism, because by and large, we tend to think of ourselves as good people who just need to live good lives and then God will accept us. We're going to focus on that because it's tragic. It is tragic for you. It is tragic for me. It is tragic for anyone to think that they are good And just needing to live a good life, and then God will accept them because they're basically good, leading a basically good life. It's tragic because it's the exact opposite of what God says. It's the exact opposite of what historic Christianity has always taught ever since the beginning, and that is that we're sinners that we're not basically good needing to just live basically good lives. We're sinners, and therefore, under the just or under the fair condemnation of God, who is good, it's tragic because if we think that way, that we're basically good needing to live basically good lives, you know what we will never think about in the right way? We'll never think about the cross. At least we'll never think about it in the right way. Because if we're basically good, needing to live basically good lives, and then God will accept us, then why in the world did God have to become one of us and live a perfect life on our behalf and then die a sinner's death on our behalf and then rise again from the dead on our behalf? It doesn't make any sense. Christianity will never make any sense to a moral, therapeutic deus. But most of us in our world, in our country... Think like that. I'm so thankful that God gave us a gift to help us. He gave us the gift not only of his word, but he gave us the gift of Romans 2. Romans 2 is a sure cure for moral therapeutic deism. And we're focusing on the moral part because we need to see what God has to say about us just being good people trying to live good lives. Certainly, at least we're living better lives than, you know, those those bad people that you, you see on the news. Do you remember those people from Romans 1? You know, just the run-of-the-mill bad kind of person. Not like you. Not like your friends and, and your social network. But you know, those those bad, bad people. Well, Romans 2 helps us to see that those bad people in Romans 1. And they are bad, by the way. Who deserve to go to hell. Oh, and by the way, they do. Aren't that different from you? And from me, us. Good people who try to have our good outweigh our bad. It's going to tell us this bad news so that we can see the great news of the cross and the great news of salvation in Christ. I like what one person said regarding the teaching of Romans 2. He said, we cannot leave people alone in their false paradise of supposed innocence. How in the world are we truly loving our neighbor as ourselves?" if we're leaving them in this false paradise of supposed innocence that I'm just a good person and God is going to accept me. We can't. We must not do that. Out of love for our neighbor, we must not do that. Out of love for God, we must not do that. And so Romans 2 is where we're going to be this morning. As we look at Romans 2, we'll look at the first 16 verses. And what we will do is be able to formulate our thoughts around four certainties. Four certainties of divine judgment. Four certainties of divine judgment upon the moralist. Four certainties of divine judgment upon the moralist. The moralist, and by moralist, I mean the person who understands that there are bad people in the world who are sinners, and that they understand that they're not one of them. The moralist is the person who reads Romans 1 and hears that these people who do all these sinful things are under the condemnation of God, and they say, amen. They might say, thank God that I'm not like those other people, because I'm generally a good person, and God is going to accept me. Oh, I've sinned, but you know, I'm better than those people, so God will accept me. That's a moralist, a moral do-gooder, that's what we might call them. Well, there are four certainties regarding divine judgment upon them. These certainties underscore the the righteousness of God. They underscore the sinfulness of humanity. They underscore the the need for the cross and the gospel. Let me preview those four for you now. Number one, the moralist is, each one of these will start with the moralist is. Number one, self-condemned. The moralist is self-condemned. We see this in the first four verses of Romans 2. The moralist is self-condemned. The second certainty of divine judgment upon the moralist, number two, the moralist is worthy of judgment. Is worthy of judgment. That's in verses 5 to 10. The moralist is worthy of judgment. That's the second certainty. The third certainty of divine judgment upon the moralist is the moralist is not shown partiality, or is not shown favoritism. It's not shown partiality, not shown favoritism. Verses 11 to 15, and the fourth and final certainty of divine judgment upon the moralist is, the moralist is judged by Jesus himself. The moralist is judged by Jesus himself, and that's in verse 16. And it's the final one. Really, the fourth goes with the third. But for the sake of emphasis, I wanted to break it out and look at it in and of itself. We'll probably spend most of our time on the first two, so don't get too nervous. And then we'll speed it up on the third and on the fourth. But remember the big picture of Romans when we do this. Okay? I want Before we get into these, let me give you some heads up about Romans 2. Re- please remember the big picture of Romans. Romans 1, the pagans, the bad people, they're worthy of condemnation. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, the moralist, the moral do-gooder who sees himself as better than the person in Romans 1, well, they're sinners too, so they're worthy of the wrath of God. And then next time, we'll move to 17 and following in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, the religious person also, because they're sinners too, are worthy of divine judgment. And that's where God wants us to be. He wants us to accept the truth about ourselves, standing before him in desperation, and we say, we can't do it. And that's when we see our need for the cross. All of this bad news is driving us to see the goodness of the good news, the one who did, did good for us, the good Savior, the good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, who dies in our place. Remember that. Remember that because even as we look at this particular passage, you might get confused. If you only look at Romans 2, and I'm one who's big on saying you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, but not in context... As we get into Romans 2, if you don't don't remember the big picture, you might actually, if you reject the author's intended meaning by ripping it out of context, you might actually think that if you just do good, God will accept you. Well, that doesn't work because at the end in Romans 3, we're going to see things like Romans 3, 9, both Jews and Greeks, that would be everybody, are all under sin. So just remember that big picture. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3 together, or you'll come up with a different religion. Also, by way of just, just helping you understand Romans 2, uh, the style that Paul uses is very effective. I might not even need to say this, but I will. He uses the, a style that's called a diatribe. He, he has this imaginary uh, objector. He's anticipating objections, and, and so he's dialoguing with this person who probably doesn't even exist. But he anticipates the objection, and so he interacts and gives an answer. And by now, Paul's been preaching for about 20 years. He's been preaching the gospel. I mean, he knows what hecklers are going to say. He's spoken to enough crowds, to enough people, Christians and non-Christians. He anticipates the objections. And so he's going to interact with these uh, probably with a fictitious objector because he's heard this from real people enough times. And so he will pose questions, answer questions, and just know that that's what the format's going to be like. And then one final word before we get to the first certainty. It's just an interpretive issue that I don't think has to be a huge big deal. And the big question in Romans 2 is, who are these people? Are these Jews or not? I don't want to lose you on this, but I just want to talk about it a little bit. It seems like they're Jews. Most scholars believe these are Jewish people. But other scholars think these are good Gentiles, you know, who are not like the flagrant Gentiles of Romans 1. You know what? At the end of the day, it ultimately doesn't matter. He deals with the quote-unquote pagans in chapter 1 who don't even try to hide their sin. It's flagrant. In chapter 2, in verses 1 to 16, whether they're Jewish people or they're, they're quote-unquote good-natured, externally good Gentiles, it doesn't matter. The point is people who think they're basically good people and they're going to work their way to heaven or God's going to accept them because they're basically good people are dead wrong. And then clearly later in chapter 2 and chapter 3, for sure they're Jews because they're clinging to their religion. Well, I want to put it that way because this is easy for us to apply. It's easy for us to apply because we're a whole planet filled with people who think we're basically good and God is going to accept us. Jew and Gentile alike. Let's assume it is Jews. It's a perfect glove for us as a 2,000-year-old movement called Christianity to wear. Because there are many people who think because I'm associated with Christianity, I go to church or I went to church, I was raised in church, we have eight Bibles in my house and I've memorized of verses and things like that, that somehow that makes me good and God is going to accept me. So at the end of the day, we just know that these are the moralists, whether they're Jewish, Gentile... Or what, by way of application, it's very easy uh, for us to relate to. Okay, enough setup, enough introduction. Let's actually get into it. Number one, the first certainty of divine judgment upon the moralist. The moralist is self-condemned. Perhaps this first one is my favorite because it's so logical and so clear. Let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you... I might, just for sake of interpretation... Remind you, he just finished chapter 1. Therefore, you who look down on that quote-unquote sinner in chapter 1. Therefore, you who would hear Romans 1 and say, Amen, brother. Therefore, you who's not like the one in chapter 1 apparently. Look what it says. Have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. Every one of you who says amen to chapter 1. For in that which you judge another... You condemn yourself. How can this be? Keep reading. For for you who judge, practice the same things. To the moralist, Jewish or not, this is a startling thing to say. It's startling because for starters, he says you have no excuse. Well, that, That's what he said in Romans 1, in Romans 1.20 about the, the, the outright pagans. They have no excuse. And now you're using the same sort of sentence of condemnation upon me and I'm not like them. And you're telling me I have no excuse before God? It would be one of those, <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me, surely you're not talking about me. I I beg your pardon? You're putting me in the same category as those, those well, you know, sinners? You see, let me tell you who I am. Here's a fictitious list. I volunteer for worthy causes. I'm pro-life. I've never been arrested. I've adopted a highway. I'm on the neighborhood watch. I've never cheated on my spouse. I put money in the Salvation uh, Army coffer. In fact, I even volunteered to do that and ring the bell myself. I think Bono is right in fighting AIDS in Africa, and I support that. I drive a hybrid. And on the list could go. I'm a moral do-gooder. I'm not like those other people. It's the kind of person he's dealing with. So the moralist thinks. But if you look at the end of verse 1, again, the problem is, you, the moralist, who judge pagans for being worthy of divine judgment, and by the way, the pagans in chapter 1 are worthy of divine judgment, the problem is not in that they're judging. It's true. They're actually bad people who are sinners. Read Romans 1. But but in keeping in mind, you, the moralist, who judge... You know the difference between right and wrong, and when you see wrong, you you say so. Practice the same things. (laughs) He's saying you're as guilty as the outright pagan. You're smart enough to see bad when you know bad when you see it, but you know what? You're just as bad. You're no better than they are is what he's saying, is what he's arguing. And then he gives the logic behind this. I love verse 2 and I love his approach in this diatribe. And we know, Paul does this a lot, he's he's drawing them in, you know. He's not just preaching at them, he's even recruiting them to just, just use your brain here. You and I both know, you you know, you're logical enough to to see this in verse 2, and we know, this is axiomatic, self-evident truth, and we know that the judgment of God rightly or justly falls upon those who practice such things. You and I couldn't agree more. The people in Romans 1 are worthy of divine judgment. They're worthy of wrath. So far, so good. Verse 3, But do you suppose but do you in the greek new testament logizomai where we get our word logic do do, do you do, do you is this is how your logic works do you suppose paul uses this at least 19 times in romans he's always wanting us to engage our mind and carry out the logic of our our bad thinking so we can see that it's not really good thinking at all do you suppose do you logizomai this Oh man, in verse three, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and, and do the same yourself, that you, emphatic in the Greek New Testament, that you will escape the judgment of God. He's saying, your logic is out of whack. Your legitsimying is, is faulty. Just, just think with me here, he's saying. You condemn them and, you know, look down your posh Knows at them, but you do the same thing. You're saying, "God, get them! They deserve to go to hell." And he's saying, "You know, when you look at yourself, oh, sure, you're more sophisticated. You, you, you know, you you can you can somehow mask it better than they can. You're smart enough to know what God accepts and doesn't accept, so you can kind of keep it behind closed doors and you can dress it up and keep it nice looking because, after all, you're a moral do-gooder." <sighs> But he's saying, you know you do the same thing. Do you think that if God condemns them justly and you do the same thing, He's not going to condemn you justly? This is masterful what he's doing here. The problem is, both groups sin. I don't know about you, but I can spot idolatry. You know, I, I can see when somebody's not loving God. I can see, as we talked about it in Romans 1, and I, I can hear it as they're saying, to me God is, to me God is, and they reject God how, for who He's revealed Himself to be, and you see it for the ugliness that it is. I can see immorality, can't you? Can't you spot immorality? The problem is, even though I'm more sophisticated, I do it too. I sin too. So do you, even those of us who say we're, we're good people. I was in a coffee shop this past week. Imagine that. <laughs> One of the coffee shops I was in this last week. I'm smart enough to change coffee shops so you can't find me, so I can get my work done and actually preach and say, dearly. instead of saying, beloved, the Lord laid it on my heart to preach last week's sermon. <laughs> I'm studying, trying to get away, sitting there, watching all these different people around me, tables, people doing business, people studying, there's all these people at this coffee shop, and, and in walks this woman who's dressed to the hilt, she's all decked out, all the right jewelry, all the right clothes, looks like she was just walked you know, out of a Dillard's magazine or something, and she walks in and I watch man after man after man after man, I'm like a fly on a wall. Look her up, look her down, and you know you get the distinct impression they're not looking at her. You know, praising God that she's someone's great wife, or someone's future mother, or something like that. And I just sat there, and I was just disgusted, and I just thought, man, this, this is this is bad. And really, what I was thinking is, man, these guys are such perverts. You know, I didn't go this far, but really, you know what? Get them, God. They deserve to go to hell. And you know what? In my evaluation and thinking all that and feeling disgusted, I was right. I was right in thinking that. It's true. What they were doing was wrong. But then only to sit there a little bit longer and remember, I deserve to go to hell too. Sure, I didn't do what they did. I was more sophisticated. I'm more sophisticated in my sinning more sophisticated in my lust. What they're doing is wrong, and for me to see it as wrong is is right, but to then therefore conclude, since I don't do exactly what they do in the external way that I'm free and clear, is wrong. Because I'm a sinner too. I'm worthy of divine wrath too. Just one illustration, we can think of all kinds of illustrations. The point of Romans 2 is so far... It's a self-condemnation. By us seeing other people as bad and worthy of condemnation, if we just carry that out with consistency, it doesn't take us very long to be able to look in the mirror spiritually and say, I deserve what they deserve. And that's what we're supposed to see in this argument here. Now, as we move on, it's as if Paul inserts verse 4 just as sort of a, a reminder of something. You know, lest we look at Romans 1 and we say, Yeah, get them, God. Why are you withholding your wrath? That is so wrong and it's a violation against your holy standards. Why are you waiting? Get them, God. Paul inserts this little reminder about the goodness of God. It's so helpful. Verse 4 says, Or do you think lightly? Of the riches, of His kindness, literally of His goodness, of, of God's inherent goodness. Have you forgotten about God's inherent goodness which leads to a couple of very important things? And tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He's saying, have you forgotten about the goodness of God which leads to Him being long-suffering? Don't be so quick to get, to want God to zap those bad people because the fact of the matter is you're a bad person too and God is being patient and long-suffering withholding His judgment l- lest you perhaps by the grace of God repent and believe just like you would want those other people to. And I like it that he added that. I need to remember even as I see sin for what it is. I just need to to, to remember to not to remember to not forget the goodness of God which leads to God being patient and long-suffering, giving time, giving allowance for repentance. Well, if you're still feeling good about yourself and you're still better than other people, well, let's move on to the second certainty regarding divine judgment. The moralist is worthy of righteous judgment. The moralist is worthy of righteous judgment. Judgment or worthy of judgment, verses five to ten again let 's look at verse five now, but because of your stubborn, stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself he 's using this picturesque word, you are piling up wrath he 's actually using a first century term for investing. You are you're making an investment, and you know what you're investing. You're investing in future wrath, is what he's saying. Interestingly enough, listen to what one commentator said about this: the capital of wrath grows until the last judgment, and will then be paid with compound interest. You know what you're doing? You're, you're just you're making an investment, all right, but it's an investment for wrath. Keep reading then in verse 5, in the day of wrath, he's not talking about current wrath like in Romans 1, he's now talking about future coming wrath associated with the second coming of Christ, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I underline the righteous judgment of God. The moralist is worthy of the righteous judgment of God. This isn't God somehow having a bad day. This is God doing what is right and what is fair. You know what's right and fair in Romans 1? Judgment. Because they're sinners. Now he's just carrying that logic into chapter 2 to the moralist. Because moralists are sinners too. It's God's righteous judgment to damn them as well. There's where he's going. It's pretty interesting that he says... In that verse that we just read in verse 5, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, I think it's significant to mark that there's a day when God's righteous wrath will be revealed. That word revelation, where it will be made known to everyone. It will be made clear to everyone. God is so gracious in telling us that now. Instead of having us say, I'm a good person, not like the bad people in Romans 1, "I'm I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. And then someday finding out as God's righteous judgment, giving people what they deserve and the wages of sin is death, a rude awakening when God's righteous judgment is revealed, it's made clear. See, right now we're in the mode of saying, la, 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 la. Don't tell me I'm not a good person. God is so gracious in saying, look, there's a day coming where everyone will see this the righteous judgment of God, the fair judgment of God, even upon moral do-gooders because they too are sinners, is going to be revealed. It's so good for God to tell us that now. He's doing that here with this person. And then what He does in the following verses, verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, He just talks about fairness. Okay, we've gotten the point. We could move on. He could have moved on. But what he does is he starts unpacking fairness. You know, you can't say God doesn't give people what they earn. He's making the point, okay, the the Romans, one person is condemned because they're sinners, but you know what, you're a sinner too, and you deserve God's righteous wrath too, because God gives good people what they deserve, and God gives bad people what they deserve, and the argument of Romans in the whole context is everyone is bad. But let's just talk now, let's just reason now about God. God doing what's right, God doing what's fair. Alright, let's join Paul in the reasoning. Verse 6 says, God will render to each person according to his deeds. See, that's that's just got fair written all over it. He'll give payment where payment is due. Render. And here's how the principle works. Verse 7, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. You know, for all those people who persevere in doing good, they seek... Uh, for glory and honor and immortality, God will give them eternal life. That's the principle. Verse 8, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Again, that's that's just fair and right. God gives people what they deserve. He renders to them what is merited. Continuing on, verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, fairness, righteousness... Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's going out of his way to illustrate, hey, for good people who do the right thing, God is going to give them eternal life. For bad people who do the wrong thing, God is going to condemn them. Now, if you take these verses out of context of the argument of Romans 1, 2, and 3, you'll come up with a different religion other than Christianity you'll conclude, well, you know what? This just means we just need to preach moral do-gooderism to people. And as long as they do the right thing, they'll get eternal life. And if they don't do the right thing, they won't get eternal life. But what we don't want to do is treat this like some sort of hijacker and take it out of context. When you read it as a literary document, you read it in context. And when we get to chapter 3, the clear whole argument is, in fact, go ahead and turn there if you would. Alright, Romans 3, verse 12, keep it in context. We have Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 of chapter 2. Just fleshing out the principle because having heard that, you know what, if you do good, you'll get eternal life. You get to chapter 3, verse 12, what does it say, halfway through the verse? There is none who does good. There's not even one. So at God's awards banquet, if you will, and I'm just making this up, if God were to have an awards banquet, at the very, very end, there would be a special banquet room for all of you who did good. For all of you, everyone on the planet, who, who didn't sin and they just did good their whole life, and God is going to be fair, and God is going to give them eternal life. And how many people are going to show up? One! His name is Jesus, right? He lived a perfect life, and He he did everything right. He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly, and, and He loved God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved His neighbor as Himself, and He would be the only one. He would be the guest of honor. The only one. And I mention all of that because, again, if we take Romans 2, hostile... Verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We'll come up with a different theology altogether, but if we keep it in the flow, the point is, sure, God is fair. God is righteous. Good people reward bad people. Condemnation makes sense. Well, the problem is, no one does good, no, not even one. Not ultimate true good with true and perfect motives. All of this is so that we can see God is righteous. The Romans 1, quote unquote, bad person sins against God and deserves to go to hell. The Romans 2, moral do gooder, the moralist, is also a sinner. Because we look and see what they do and say, that's bad, we agree with God, and then, even though we're more sophisticated about it, we do it ourselves. So we deserve to go to hell too. It's God's righteous judgment. No one will be able to say that's not fair. You see in all of this how important it is that we get out of the trap of comparing ourselves to other people as somehow meeting the standard of God. You see, we want to look at those Romans 1 people. I'm so glad that I'm not like they are. Got to get out of that mold and realize that we do the same kinds of things. We're just more sophisticated about it. And we are too under the righteous judgment of God because we're sinners as well. And the wages of sin is death. All of this is driving us once again to desperation and driving us to the cross. Let's move on to a third certainty of divine judgment upon the moralist. It's going to reinforce the righteousness of God. That's the standard, not the other person. The sinfulness of human beings, the universal need for the gospel. Number three, the moralist is not shown partiality. The Jews thought they were going to get a pass. We have Torah. We're the chosen people. You know, we, we have we have the law. I mean, surely we're we're going to get off, and, and it's going to be okay. And there's going to be favoritism. Christians think the same way. You know, I went to Omaha Bible Church since I was two. I went to Omaha Bible Church my whole life, or I'm a Presbyterian, or or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Catholic, or whatever. because of my association, and somehow I'm privileged. And you know, we have a lot of Bibles in our house. I've been confirmed. I have a Bible with my name on it. Tell me that doesn't, you know, somehow make me better than somebody else. I've got my confirmation book. If you can read anything for the, you know, the, the, for, for all the Van Halen symbols written all over it, and Ozzy, and all this other stuff I was entertaining myself with, perhaps that was the grace of God. God causes all things to work together for good, protecting my already corrupt mind from more corrupt theology. Anyway, that was for free. I should stick to the notes. Or we think I'm American, you know, and whenever they play that song at Fourth of July, and I think it talks about God in there somewhere. I mean, it's just like I get teary and I'm an American. I've got privilege. God bless the USA. Yeah. See, we kind of think like this that God is going to give us a pass because we're not like those other people. And you know what? We're associated with religious privilege. We have favoritism from God. Well, he wants to deal with that. Look at verse 11. There is no partiality or or favoritism with God. (laughs) Maybe right in the margin, what I did Romans 6.23, which I've mentioned already, the wages of sin is death. There's no favoritism. And if God reneges on that standard, the wages of sin is death, and He's not righteous anymore, now we have a huge problem. Then He goes on to explain what He's talking about. And don't get lost for the details. Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. He's talking about clearly Gentile people. They don't have the law. They don't have revelation from God. We might say non-church people. Romans 1 people. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now we've got Jews and we might say in our day church people. What's the outcome of both groups? Answer that question for me if you would. In verse 12, what's the outcome whether or not you have the law or don't have the law? Religious privilege or no religious privilege? The outcome for both groups is the same and the outcome is judgment, condemnation. That's all he's really getting at. There's no favoritism. If you sin, fair is condemnation. Then he goes on to give more rationale. Again, don't get lost in the details, but he's just supporting his point in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just or righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Again, in light of Romans 3, verse 13 will never happen. But for sake of argument, he's making his point clear. Then verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things in the law, you know, even people without any revelation from God, you do see respect of parents, you, you do see some morality, these not having the law are law to themselves and in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Once again, what you don't want to do is take verse 14 and 15 out of context and create a whole new teaching that would say, if we just get people to do the right thing, they don't even need revelation from God. As long as they, as long as they do the right thing, they'll be accepted before God. That flies in the face of everything Romans 1, 2, and 3 are talk, is talking about. It's saying universal condemnation. But he's fleshing out this point here that God doesn't show favoritism. If you're a sinner, you have the law, you don't have the law, you're busted. And so don't see yourself as better than someone without the law. That's what he's getting at. He doesn't show favoritism. And related to that is the fourth and final certainty for divine judgment upon the moralist. Number four, which is really related to number three, the moralist is judged by Jesus himself. Look at that last verse with me if you would in verse 16. On the day when... According to my gospel, Paul owns this. This is who he is. He believes this with all of his heart even though he opposed it with all of his heart before he was converted. On the day when, according to my gospel, according to the good news that I own and internalize and will defend to the core, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That's worth thinking about for the moralist you got to know something you got to know that it's going to be judgment and you've got to know that it's going to be judgment and it's going to come from none other than Jesus himself talk about the Jesus I never knew talk about the Jesus I didn't learn growing up The same Jesus who is the object of our affection and of our worship, the gospel. It's even in the context of the gospel. According to my gospel, judgment and gospel are not mutual exclusives. They're right there in the same verse. According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. And how is He going to do it? He's going to do it through Christ. You see, the emphasis of the scripture ends up being because we're going to get to the good news of Christ that He came here and lived a righteous life, a perfect life. On behalf of sinners before God, earning salvation for us, if you will, earning our righteousness, and then dies a sinner's death on the cross, even though he never sinned, bearing God's full, undiluted wrath. Then rising again from the dead, victorious. And the Bible is clear, even back in Romans 1.16, this is for all who believe in Him. You believe in Him, you will not perish, you have everlasting life. That's John 3 as well. It's the good news of faith in Christ, trust in Him, cling to Christ because He is, He must be our righteousness because apart from Him and His goodness, you only face one thing, condemnation because you're not good. This is the gospel, but you know it goes on to connect with that gospel, the fact that this same Savior For those who reject Him and rely upon their own moral do-gooderism, which is an assault, and affront to Him, which is uh, in His face, if you will, He's the one that's going to execute judgment. That's major. We won't take the time to go there, but this is what John 5 talks about. John 5, Jesus says, My judgment is just. He says, the Father gave me authority to execute judgment. Acts 17, Acts 17, 31, look that up sometimes. Sometime. In Acts 17, one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons that God raised Jesus from the dead is to show everyone that judgment is coming and that judgment is going to come at the hand of the Son. Whoa. This isn't good news. This isn't good news at all. But it's the one and only thing that gets you and gets me ready to understand the good news for how it was meant to be understood. Pagans go to hell. We're supposed to all agree to that. Amazingly, we've gotten to a place where we're not even sure about that. But that's assumed to be true. That's Romans 1. Then we move to Romans 2. And moralists who think they're somehow good before God, they're going to go to hell too because actually they sin too. And we're not done yet. Invite your friends for next week. Invite all your religious friends. You'll need some new friends. (laughs) Or you'll have new Christian friends. Because then at the re- at the end of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3, there's just one thing left. I mean, there's just one more thing to cling to, and that is religion. Next is the final straw. <laughs> okay, God, I know I'm not like those other people, but now you tell me that I really actually am in my heart, and I actually commit those same kinds of sins, and I actually know that I do. I'm just more sophisticated in it. And, and so, so, God, uh, you know what? What I'm going to do, I, I don't really have much else to cling to, but you know what? I'm a Baptist! <laughs> or whatever, you fill in the blank, and so I know that somehow, you know, I'm going to get in because of that. And Romans 2.17, all the way into chapter 3, it says it doesn't do it either. <laughs> so now what? Now I'm in the spiritual corner, as I like to say, and I have to come to the place of hopefully frustration, hopefully desperation, and say, God, what do you want? I can't do this. This is absolutely impossible. I've tried everything. It's when you are at that point, the soil of your heart is fertile. You are ready. You are ready for the gospel, the good news, because all this is bad news. The good news that Jesus Christ Knew full well you were a failure spiritually. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Romans 5, enemies of God, You're religious maybe, Christ died for us. He comes here, lives for us, dies for us, rises for us, and then we say, ah, this is good news. I am under the just condemnation of God. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to bust the lake of fire wide open. Jesus lived for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Oh, this is good news. This is the gospel. This is great news. This is glorious news. By your grace, God, I repent of my sin, my sin of religion, my sin of moral therapeutic deism. I believe in Christ, my righteousness, my everything. That's the gospel. We got to get it, folks. We got to get it so we can help other people get it. It's vital, it's crucial, it's important. Couldn't be more important. It's of utmost importance. We've got to get the gospel. This is the gospel. Christ died for sinners. All those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So next week we'll see religion fall and it falls hard. But all of this is for the supreme, ultimate purpose of seeing Christ and his cross as everything to us so that we would boast in the cross so that we would boast in Christ it's all about him and not about us this is historic Christianity this is the basics this isn't anything new but we've gotten to the place where we as Christians we as you fill in the blank have lost sight of what the real gospel is because we've lost sight of what our problem is. And now the basics have become profound and even controversial. But the cross has always been controversial. Read First Corinthians 1 and 2. Well, enough for now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glorious, magnificent, matchless goodness of Christ. That he did love you with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, that he did love his neighbor as himself. Therefore, perfectly keeping the law, doing all of this because we can't. So that we, through faith in him, might have his righteousness and to be able to stand before you as your friend and not as one who's hostile. We love Christ. We want to boast in Christ. We want everything to be about Christ. Lord, help us to know the gospel, to believe the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to defend the gospel, to have the gospel be everything for us as a church, for us as individuals. And may we lovingly and compassionately and clearly speak much and well of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, in whose name we pray, amen.